Welcome into the Solo Shot Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dom Mana. We have a packed show this week for you all. The World Series has come to a close and we have a champion. The Houston Astros took it in six games, just as I predicted. And they did it in pretty dominating fashion. The Phillies, team of destiny on the National League side, put up a good fight. Had an amazing extra inning comeback in game one. And then game three of Philadelphia, they absolutely murdered Lance McCullers and company. But from game four on, with that no-hitter, the final two games were just not really that competitive. Verlander got his first World Series win. In game five and game six, Framber Valdez did his part, Mr. Quality Start, and kept them in the game until Jordan Alvarez broke it open with a huge home run to center field in game six. Ended up being the clinching thing. Jeremy Pena, the rookie shortstop who replaced Carlos Correa, had an amazing postseason winning both ALCS and World Series MVP. He is the first position player rookie to win the World Series MVP in the history of baseball, which is really cool. The only other two rookies to win were both pitchers. And Jeremy Pena, he batted over 400 in the series and just gave great at-bats getting on for Jordan and Bregman and all the other hitters below Tucker, etc., Played great defense, and the Astros didn't miss a beat going from Correa to him. Uh, It was really awesome to watch. And while many people were rooting against the Astros for what happened in 2017, the only members of that 2017 World Series team that are still on the roster are Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Justin Verlander, Yuli Gurriel, and Lance McCullers. They have a whole new general manager, a whole new coach. Congratulations to Dusty Baker, who going into this World Series had the most wins in baseball history without a World Series title. That is no longer the case. Future Hall of Famer manager. Awesome. It was just so great for this Astros organization. It's so great for the fans and those players that are still there from the 2017 team to have... A title that can't be argued, that can't be diminished for possible cheating allegations. The Astros were an amazing team, and they were throughout the whole playoffs. They only lost two games, and they were both in the World Series against the best that the NL had to offer. Really dominant showing. The Astros' bullpen was absolutely electric. And, you know, it was just really cool to see as a fan of great pitching what the Astros were able to deal and the Phillies had their moments with their pitching as well now we look ahead to the offseason Justin Verlander opted out of his contract with the Astros he saw what Max Scherzer got he knows what Jacob deGrom is going to get and he wants to pitch until he's 45 
and try to push for 300 career victories, something that we didn't think was possible in this modern era. Right now, he's at 244 career wins, so he's 56 away. If he throws Cy Young stuff for the next couple years and gets 15, 20 wins a season, he's still got a ways to go, but pitching until his goal of 45 would give him a serious chance of being maybe the last 300-game winner in baseball history. But regardless of what he decides to do, he won his second World Series championship. He now is going to win his third Cy Young Award. That's pretty much locked in the bank. He's a finalist for that and the clear winner in my opinion. He's going to get nice money and whether that's re-signing in Houston, which it seems that he likes it there. He likes Dusty, his wife and child seem to be enjoying it down there. Maybe he goes to another contending team that desperately could use a stud pitcher like him. Regardless, I think that he's won the championships. He's won the Cy Youngs. I think it's important to him to pitch till he's 45. He loves doing it, and he's going to want to do that in a place where he can win, whether that is Houston or another contender. I would be shocked to see him sign in a middling place like a Texas or a San Francisco where you're not guaranteed to be competitive. You're not guaranteed to have a chance at 15-plus wins. But it'll be really interesting adding him to the pitcher pool. It's kind of nice because Kershaw has agreed to a one-year deal to return to the Dodgers. So you take one Hall of Fame pitcher off the market and you add a Hall of Fame pitcher in his place. Uh, So Justin Verlander is one of the free agents that I will be monitoring the most this offseason. Because I think that he is really savvy with his decision making, whether it's business-wise or baseball-wise. And I think that he's going to really enjoy the prospect of figuring out the last couple years of his career. So congrats to Justin Verlander and all the Astros fans out there. It was an amazing ride. Aaron Judge is the big name in the free agent class. We've talked about him. I think he's going to be a Met. The San Francisco Giants are expected to be real players. There has been other teams with smaller levels of interest. But, you know, the Yankees have opted out of paying Jamison Tyon. And Anthony Rizzo has opted out of his deal as well. So they have some room. They have some spots to fill. It's going to be interesting to see what the Yankees look like next year. If I was them, I would prioritize pitching this offseason and look at guys, whether you want to go big money like a DeGrom or smaller money elsewhere. They need to up that pitching staff another level to be competitive with the Houstons and Clevelands of the world. So regardless where Aaron Judge goes, I think we'll know by the winter meetings so I'll keep you updated with all the rumors and things throughout there and react to whenever he signs. But he's the big fish. There's plenty of great shortstops on the market. Correa, Turner, Bogarts, Dansby Swanson, and a bunch of other great veteran free agents such as Justin Verlander, Anthony Rizzo, to name a few, Jose Abreu. I'm excited. The baseball offseason is always really fun with teams getting put together extensions being made trades being made g-man Choi, the first baseman from the rays was already traded to the pirates so 
things are happening and they will continue to happen as these teams try to build off what they did this year and try to move in the direction that they want to move in. But that being said, we're in the off season and to me it's the most wonderful time of the year and that's Hall of Fame season. The National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum has released the eight names that are on the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee, which is focusing on players whose career achievements are mostly 1980 to present. And it's a loaded ballot. Regardless of your stance on steroids, the amount of stats that are on this ballot are insane. The first of which being Albert Bell. Now, Albert Bell is the one person on the ballot that I personally wouldn't put in Cooperstown myself if I was making decisions, but he did have a really great prime that I think gets overlooked, so it's nice to see him on the ballot. He had a 40.1 career war and a 295 career batting average, 1,726 hits, so under the rule of 2,000, which is why I didn't get in with the writers. 381 home runs, so you missed out on the 400 club. But he has 1,239 runs driven in. That is a pretty strong number right there. Five all-star teams, five silver sluggers, and he finished top five in MVP voting three times and was the runner-up once. So, great career. I believe it was a hip injury that shortened his career and was part of the reason he wasn't able to hit some of those milestones that tend to help you when it comes to Hall of Fame voting. The next one is Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds, it's pretty clear to most people that he used steroids. For those of you that don't know my stance on steroids, I draw a line basically where baseball did. Baseball knew that players were pumping themselves full of all different kinds of hormones and different performance-enhancing drugs, and they didn't do anything for a while because it was profitable. The home run race of 98 took baseball from drifting out of American fame back to the top and has kept it relevant ever since. I think that the stress on the home run is still a side effect from that era with teams looking for power and appreciating power over many other skills. But Bud Selig, who was the commissioner of baseball at the time and did not punish those players, soon as he was eligible for the Hall of Fame, they waltzed him right in, moved the red velvet rope, first shot he had, he's in Cooperstown. And I think Bud Selig belongs to be in Cooperstown. He's one of the great commissioners the game has ever seen. However, the players that were in that same era that either admitted to taking something or were expected to take something have really been the ones that have been punished by the writers and the Hall of Fame. I'm fine with them not getting in first ballot. I'm fine with people knowing that there's something there to their numbers, but baseball still recognizes their records as the official records in the record book. They never serve suspensions for whatever they were doing because it wasn't illegal in the game. It was actually celebrated in the game. So where I draw the line is players that were using steroids 
after baseball started to crack down on it and served a suspension, a la Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez, etc., they broke a written rule and were suspended for it as the short-term punishment. And for the long-term punishment, I wouldn't put them in Cooperstown. But for the players that were in the era prior, we don't know who was clean. We don't know who was juicing. Some we have a good idea. Some have admitted to it. Some have sworn that they haven't done a drop. You can have your suspicions, but I would put them all in. And that starts with Barry Bonds, who arguably is a top 10 player of all time. 162.8 war. That's about three Albert Bells, 298 batting average, 2,935 hits, just missed 3,000, all-time home run record, 762 home runs, never going to be broken, and he just missed the 2,000 RBI club with 1,996 RBIs, and you say, Barry Bonds, top 10 player of all time, but he doesn't have 2,000 RBIs, he doesn't have 3,000 hits, do you know why he doesn't have those numbers? It's not because he was swinging for the fences. It's because they weren't letting the man hit. He has an all-time record 2,558 walks. Over 1,000 more walks than strikeouts. There was a time where he was so feared that they wouldn't even pitch to him. They would walk him two to four times a night if they had to and he would take those walks he had a great eye for the strike zone and was just an amazing hitter that in his early days was able to compile 514 stolen bases and gold glove defense as well eight gold gloves 14 time all-star 12 time silver slugger and he has two batting titles as well he wasn't just a pure slugger roger clemens the other guy that is kind of linked to Bonds as the two big steroid guys that have gotten punished by the Hall of Fame. 139.2 war with a 3.12 earned run average for his career. 354 wins. We just talked about the 300 win club being hard to get into. One of four men with over 4,000 strikeouts, 4,672 Ks, seven Cy Young Awards, just like Barry Bonds has seven MVPs most ever 11 all-stars two world series titles two pitching triple crowns and seven era titles the rocket was insane from his young days in boston where he caved 20 in a game all the way till the end of the line he was a hall of fame pitcher and should be in the hall of fame someday the next player is someone that before the Hall of Fame changed their rules with the error committees was outside of my borderline. I wouldn't have put him into the Cooperstown. But Don Mattingly, now that they have said that their other contributions to the game will be weighted in their case, his nearly 1,000 wins as a manager and manager of the year award are enough for me to push him over my borderline into me being okay with Don Mattingly being in the Baseball Hall of Fame. A lot of people are avid fans of his that say he should already be in, but because of his back injury, you can see why. 42.4 war, kind of low for a Hall of Famer. 
career 307 batting average. That's very good. He won an MVP. 2,153 hits. So he breaks the rule of 2,000, but not anywhere near the 3,000 hit club. 222 home runs. I get he wasn't a huge power hitter, but as a first baseman, that's a low number. 1,099 career RBIs. So he breaks 1,000 runs driven in, which is huge, but not an elite RBI member. Six all-star teams, nine gold gloves, which is a lot for a first baseman, three silver sluggers, and a batting title. Mattingly, for a stretch there, was one of the best players in baseball. And now that you're including his managerial success with his playing career, I think it's enough to merit consideration for the Hall of Fame. I would put him on my ballot. Fred McGriff, the crime dog. This man is a great example of what's wrong with the Hall of Fame. And this is coming from someone who loves the Hall of Fame. Fred McGriff has a 52.6 war. 284 career batting average, 2,490 hits, 493 home runs. He just missed 2,500 hits and 500 home runs because of the strike year. And I think if he had those two numbers, he would have gotten in by the writers and not been on this error committee at all. 1,550 runs driven in, five all-star teams won a World Series with the Braves, three-time Silver Slugger, and finished top five in MVP voting once. He was a slugger that was expected to be clean from all counts. A guy that isn't known for playing for one team, which also hurts his case. But if you look at him, the joke amongst Hall of Fame fans that it's a crime dog that Fred McGriff is not in the Hall of Fame. And I think that he is one of the two strongest candidates to get in this time around. Next on the ballot, Dale Murphy. Another fan favorite player that had his career cut short. 46.5 career war, a 265 career batting average. It got really bad as he continued to hold on. 2,111 hits. He breaks the rule of 2,000. 398 home runs. He just missed 400. 1,266 runs driven in. That's a very good number. Seven all-star teams. Four silver sluggers. Five gold gloves. This is a guy that came up as a catcher but played a great outfield. And won back-to-back MVPs. For a stretch there, he was one of the best players in baseball. And I think that means something. He's a guy that some people say didn't compile enough. Others say that he was one of the best players in the game and had enough stats to be in Cooperstown, and I'm in that camp. I think that his batting average is low. It would be nice if he was in the 400 home run club, but not every career ends up being a healthy one and there's been plenty of players with short peaks like Roy Campanella, Sandy Koufax, Kirby Puckett that have gotten preferential treatment into the Hall of Fame. Rafael Palmero, who swore in court that he didn't take steroids, 71.9 career war, it's amazing, 288 batting average, 3,020 hits, 569 home runs. He's one of six members of both the 3,000 hit and 500 home run club. 1,835 runs driven in, an elite run producer. Four all-star teams, three gold gloves, two silver sluggers. After Bonds and Clemens go in, 
he should be the very next steroid guy that gets in the hall. From Jose Gonzago's book, it's very clear that he used, and it's okay because he wasn't breaking the rules at the time. It's hard to say that a guy that's in the 3,000 hit club isn't a Hall of Famer. It's hard to say that a guy in the 500 home run club isn't a Hall of Famer. But a guy that's in both needs to be in the Hall of Fame. And the last one, really controversial guy, but not a controversial case, and that's Kurt Schilling. I've seen plenty of people, because they don't like the type of person he is, say that his career is borderline. And it's just not. 79.5 career war which for a pitcher is really good. 3.46 ERA, not great. But when you look at the numbers, he has over 200 wins, 216 wins. He has over 3,000 strikeouts, 3,116 Ks. And he finished top five in Cy Young voting four times, three of which he finished second in voting. So three times he had an amazing season but finished behind only the best pitcher in his league. Six all-star appearances, three World Series, one World Series MVP, and his 4.38 strikeout per walk ratio is the most ever by a pitcher with over 3,000 innings pitched. He pitched a lot of innings in the big leagues, and he struck out more batters efficiently than anybody else. The heart of the steroid era, he wasn't the guy that had the pinpoint ERA. He wasn't the guy that was always on the best teams getting 20 wins. But he was a damn good pitcher and leveled up in the playoffs. Everyone knows his bloody sock game. But an 11-2 record with a 2.23 ERA, four complete games with a 4.8 strikeout to walk ratio better than his regular season i understand he's a jerk i don't agree with pretty much anything that the man says but the fact that writers use their feelings to keep him out of cooperstown i just don't think it's right there was other pitchers that went in that were less deserving and it's a shame that he's not in there i think that the veterans committee is going to write that wrong here on the first ballot Unlike years past, it used to be 10 names on the ballot and the committee of 16 could vote for four people. Now, with the new era committees, there are eight people on the ballot and the 16 committee members can vote for three. You need to get votes from 12 out of the 16 members for induction. I'm afraid there's going to be some old school guys on this committee that just are very anti-steroids and anything about it. And for that reason... I think that on this ballot, despite how loaded it is, I'd put everybody on it other than Albert Bell in the Hall of Fame. I can only vote for three, but the two that I think will get in this time around are Kurt Schilling and Fred McGriff because they have the numbers and they don't have the steroid suspicion. Regardless, the results of this will come out on December 4th, and I'm excited to see which of these eight get in. Like I said, I think they're all deserving other than Albert Bell and won't be mad with any combination of guys. With only being able to vote for three, 
Uh, I don't think it's mathematically possible for more than three guys to get picked, but we'll see if they're able to do some magic with the votes and get more than three in there. I think it's going to be McGriff and Schilling. The NFL season continues to wear on. We had a Thursday night football game last night that was a divisional matchup. I picked it correctly with the Panthers over the Falcons. The Panthers have just been running the ball really well since they traded McCaffrey. Deontay Foreman has looked like a very solid running back, just as we saw him last year filling in for Derrick Henry. And they were able to run their way to victory 25-15. to Not too much to talk about there. Both of these teams should be tanking, but because how bad the NFC South is... They're all competing for the division right now. The Buccaneers that also play in that NFC South will be playing the Seattle Seahawks in Munich, Germany at 9.30 a.m. Sunday. First game ever in Germany for the NFL. I think that the Buccaneers, despite them being able to bounce back and beat the Rams, will not be able to do the same with the Seahawks. They've just played really great football. And Geno Smith has been one of the best stories in football this year. So while the Buccaneers had a much-needed win that I predicted last week, I don't think that they beat the Seahawks. In Germany, for fantasy purposes, you start Godwin, Fournette, Evans, and I think you can start Kate Otten now. For the Seahawks side of the ball, you start Kenneth Walker, DK Metcalf, and you could do worse than Tyler Lockett. Both quarterbacks are usable in two quarterback formats lions bears at one o'clock justin fields has been proving a lot of haters wrong he was my quarterback two in the class behind trevor lawrence and while i love the player i hated the usage so far this season i've been clowning on the bears all year for playing 1980s football and they're still not letting fields throw it that much per game but they traded for chase claypool they're making designed runs and have changed the offense around where they're a lot more competitive and i think that this bears lions game will actually be a very fun game for fantasy purposes i think both bears running backs are interesting justin fields is in your lineup he's been a qb1 for the last three four weeks and if i'm starting a bears wide receiver I'm starting Chase Claypool. I think this is the game where they start using him as part of the offense. Darnell Mooney, if you're really desperate. Lions side of the ball. They traded away TJ Hawkinson. James Mitchell looks to be the tight end to own there, but he's a touchdown dependent guy right now. Jameson Williams isn't expected back till December. DeAndre Swift is banged up. If Swift's out there, you play him, but the lion that you want in your lineup is Amon Ross St. Brown. He's going to get eight-plus targets, and if he's right, should be a very good play for you. Borderline wide receiver one. Browns, Dolphins. Jacoby Brissett, his time is starting to run out. He only got a couple weeks left, and playing against his former team in Miami, think that there's some emotional stuff there you start Nick Chubb you can start Kareem Hunt you start Amari Cooper Dolphins side Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle are locks in your lineup you could do worse than Raheem Mostert but because of the split between him and Jeff Wilson I'm not too keen on either of them this week 
I thought Wilson would get eased into the offense, but he knows that 49ers running scheme that McDaniel runs. So some motivation there. They're both rosterable running backs. None the least. I have the Browns beating the Dolphins on the road in this one. Broncos at Titans. Jerry Judy has become the Broncos wide receiver one and is the guy that I would play out of the two. Sutton, you could do worse. Dolchich has been a tight end one. He's getting the targets and looks good out there. Titan side of the ball, it's Derrick Henry or bust. And they have won a lot of games that way. I'm hoping that Traylon Burks gets back sooner rather than later. His window has opened up to come back from IR. And I'm excited to see if he can come back and level up this offense. I still think that the Broncos won't be able to stop Derrick Henry in this one. And I got the Titans beating the Broncos at home. Vikings-Bills. The Vikings have been a nice story this year. When you look at it on paper, the Bills should dominate. But the Bills have a big problem. And that is Josh Allen has something going on with his elbow. He injured it in the game against the Jets last week where the Jets upset him and everybody lost their survivor tournaments. Really scary for the Bills. He's been day-to-day. Even if Josh Allen plays, uh, I don't think he's going to be completely right uh, from everything that I've read. I'm picking the Vikings on the road in this one. They're the worst team, but the healthy quarterback usually helps a lot. While this could be Case Keenum revenge game... Kirk Cousins had an amazing comeback against the Commanders last weekend. He wore the chains on the plane. I like the energy. With this Vikings team, you start Jefferson, you start Cook. And I think Hawkinson might be playable this week in his second week with the Vikings. Bill's side, you play Diggs no matter what. You only play Gabe Davis if Josh Allen is out there. And if I'm starting a Bill's running back, it's still Devin Singletary. Texans at Giants. Texans have been known to give teams fits, and Damian Pierce, despite his shoulder injury, is still going to be in your lineup. But the Giants have been way better than advertised this year. Saquon Barkley is back to his old self. Daniel Jones has been improved. And the defense and offensive lines have both been playoff caliber for the Giants. I think that's enough to get it done at home against the Texans. This isn't going to be a fun game for anybody, especially because in fantasy purposes, you're pretty much just starting the running backs. But Giants will beat the Texans in an ugly one. It could be close. It could be a blowout. But it's it's going to be an ugly game script regardless. Jaguars at Chiefs. Trevor Lawrence is worrying me a lot. Not quite what we'd want out of a franchise quarterback. He hasn't been flashing as much recent weeks as Justin Fields has. This quarterback class was expected to be historic, and it's been historically mid so far. But Travis Etienne, RB1, set and forget it. Christian Kirk, if you're playing a receiving option from Jacksonville, is the guy you want. Chiefs side of the ball, Kelsey and Mahomes are locked in your lineup. And I think this is a game where an MVS could have a long touchdown bomb. If I'm going to play a Chiefs wide receiver. That's the guy that I'm going with. Chiefs will beat the Jaguars at home. I don't expect this to be terribly close. But the Jaguars did upset the Chargers this year. So anything could happen. Saints at Steelers. Saints got some interesting stuff going on. With the Andy Dalton quarterback circus going on. Alvin Kamara and Chris Olave are the guys that I want to play. You could do worse if you're desperate at tight end. And Taysom Hill. Because he could have a huge week. Steelers. 
you start Deontay, you start Fryermuth. If you're in a pinch, guys like Najee and Pickens can be used. I think Kenny Pickett will look better in this game. He's been slowly getting better, but this is another game that I don't love how it's going to look fantasy-wise. I'm going to pick the home team here, the Steelers, but I, I don't know how this game's going to go. Steelers have been looking like they're tanking, but so have the Saints. So it's uh, going to be a fun one for those two fan bases that love ripping their hair out watching games. We're in the 4 o'clock slate, and before we get into this matchup, we got to talk about the team, the Indianapolis Colts. What didn't come as much of a surprise is a week after firing their offensive coordinator. The Colts went out there and had an absolute stinker up in New England against their quote-unquote bitter rival. Hasn't much of a rivalry as of late, but Colts fired head coach Frank Reich. Never liked to see a guy get fired, but with how the seasons went and how Chris Ballard doesn't want to take responsibility... I understand why Frank Reich got the boot. They've never been able to figure stuff out since Andrew Luck retired. They've had all different kinds of quarterbacks start for them and none of them be great. It's it's sucked for Colts fans. It really has. But Jim Ursay goes out there and he hires former Pro Bowl center Jeff Saturday as their head coach for the rest of the season, their interim head coach. And some of you will be like, oh yeah, Jeff Saturday was a great player. He played with Peyton Manning and Aaron Rodgers. And he knows how to lead men. And that I'll agree with you on. But Jeff Saturday was not a member of this Indianapolis coaching staff. Nor was he a member of any coaching staff, actually. He has zero NFL and college experience. And the last time he did coaching of any kind was back in Georgia when he was coaching a high school Christian Academy football team. And Jim Irsay, his press conference was a joke. They kept postponing it until Monday Night Football happened. And the quotes from it, I'm sure you'll see them online, are just really funny. I don't care if the Colts go on an absolute run and win out all of their games. Process-wise, this is one of the biggest failures I have ever watched as a football fan. Nothing against Jeff Saturday. He's been good on TV. I'm sure he's a very good man. Jim Ursay seems to really like him. They have a relationship. But you assemble this team and you assemble this coaching staff. Many of them have been there for years, but even if we just say from this offseason when you hit the reset button, you go to camp and all the mandatory workouts and the meetings and the hours that are put in, all working towards one goal, and you fire the offensive coordinator, you fire the head coach, and instead of promoting from within like any other team would do, whether you're giving a guy the first opportunity to be a head coach that had been a coordinator position coach before, or giving someone like a Gus Bradley or a John Fox who has actually coached a professional football team the opportunity to take the reins for the rest of the season. Jeff Saturday is doing something that hasn't been done 
since 1961 when the expansion Minnesota Vikings hired Norm Van Brocklin Hall of Fame quarterback as their head coach off the streets with zero coaching experience. It is unbelievable. A lot of people are trying to make it a race statement that black coaches are told that they don't have the experience necessary to coach. Jim Ursay has had multiple black coaches in Indianapolis. Tony Dungy was the first black coach to win a Super Bowl for the Indianapolis Colts. I don't think it's a race thing. I think this is an ineptitude by a cocky billionaire that thinks he knows football that much better than the rest of the league. This is a slap in the face to all the men in that building that have been working their butts off since April in the draft room. Whenever the new league year starts for them and they have everyone in place, they've all been working in the facility with the players, with themselves, with the coaches. And to have an outside guy come in with no experience to quote-unquote call the shots, but in reality, he's just going to be relying on this coaching staff that has the experience anyway? Are you kidding me? This is nothing against Jeff Saturday, the person. He even said in his press conference, why am I a candidate for this? Is what he asked Jim. Because it doesn't make sense. Jim Irsay's a billionaire. When it comes to his personal life, he can do whatever he wants. But when it comes to running a football team, the mess that you just caused for your team, for your fans, and if this is successful for the rest of the league, imagine if the Colts go on a run here with Jeff Saturday and people start offering offensive coordinator and head coaching jobs to former players and TV guys over these guys that have been working their whole lives gaining experience and learning how to run offenses and defenses and work with teams and study film these aren't skills that just get picked up in a day And Jeff Saturday has plenty of NFL experience. He knows what winning looks like. He knows how to study film from an offensive lineman perspective. But there's a lot more to being an NFL head coach than just leading. Than just knowing one position. You have to know all three phases inside and out. You have to know every single possible matchup and coverage for your formations. You need to be accountable for the 53 men that step foot in that building every day. And the fact that this coaching staff is getting passed over the opportunity to put head coach or interim head coach on their resume for a guy off the street that hasn't been working with them all off-season and season so far, It's just a major slap in the face, man. I never root for people to fail. But 
because of the process, because of what this could mean for the league, I really am just going to pick against the Colts every single week for the rest of the season. It is embarrassing and inexcusable. And I'm shocked that there hasn't been more backlash about this move. I understand everything moves on week to week. But this is one of the craziest things that I've ever seen as a sports fan. And I hope that we don't see something like this again. Because there's plenty of guys in that locker room and in that coaching staff that I think will be able to do just as good of a job, if not a better one, than Jeff Saturday. That being said, Raiders go out there at home and beat whatever team's going to come out there and face you this weekend. Jonathan Taylor's playing. I'm playing him. Jeff Saturday, former offensive lineman, understands establishing the run. You have one of the best running backs in football. You trust him. Michael Pippen's their number one receiver. If you're playing a receiver, you play the best receiver they have. Raiders side, Hunter Renfro, Darren Waller on IR. Mac Hollins is sneaky this week. Devontae Adams is a smash. Josh Jacobs is a smash. Cardinals at Rams. Cliff Kingsbury's on the hot seat. And uh, this game, I don't think, is going to help him very much. Rondale Moore and DeAndre Hopkins are both playable. Zach Ertz has been a tight end one. Rams side of the ball. You got Cooper Cup in your lineup. And I'm avoiding the running backs. Now that Cam Akers is playing again and you have that three-headed ugly committee, the Rams have become a dumpster fire offense. Super talented, really good team. I think the Rams team will beat the Cardinals team. But for fantasy purposes, the Rams are just a no for me, dog. Cowboys at Packers. The Packers have been disappointing me at every single turn this season. And I'm done picking them for a while. Especially when they're playing teams that I think are just as good. But in this case, better. Cowboys defense is so good. Great front seven. Good secondary. Rodgers had three interceptions for the first time in a game in a long time. This past weekend against the Lions in a loss. I think Trayvon Diggs gets a pick in this one. And the Cowboys end up winning. They had the extra bye week to prepare as well as this game meaning a little more to Mike McCarthy going into Lambeau as a visiting coach. So Cowboys by a million. You start CeeDee Lamb. I think Zeke will be healthy, so you can start Zeke and Pollard as RB2s. Dalton Schultz and Michael Gallup are both playable. Packers side of the ball, if I'm starting receiver, I'm starting Lazard. If starting a running back i'm starting aaron jones and that's it chargers at 49ers chargers another team with a lot of injuries mike williams has been out austin eckler's a little banged up keenan allen is week to week josh palmer is the chargers receiver i'm playing eckler he's in your lineup fantasy superstar herbert not as good as we've been hoping because he hasn't had the weapons 49ers also coming off the bye Great offensive weapons. I think they win at home here. Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle, Ayuk, and Debo all in your lineup. Commanders at Eagles. While Taylor Heineke has played admirable, and he's made Terry McLaurin a safe play again, which I love. Not feeling great about their chances in this one against the undefeated Eagles. 
I think Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Miles Sanders, Dallas Goddard and company, they're all in play, and I think they will get the win in this one by a pretty dominating fashion on Monday night. I think that Peyton and Eli will be kind of just making jokes and old references by halftime. Appreciate you guys listening. As always, this one ran a little long. I had some rants. I'm very passionate about the Hall of Fame. I'm very disgusted about what's going on in Indianapolis and had to get a lot off my chest. I hope you guys enjoy your solo shot Saturday, and I will catch you in the next one. Peace.